Okay, uh, you're all very welcome to the first of our Irish Studies uh, seminar series for spring 2021. Uh, my name is Dr. Nessa Cronin. I'm a lecturer in Irish Studies at the Centre for Irish Studies at NUI Galway and also an Associate Director of the Moore Institute for the Humanities and Social Studies at NUI Galway as well. Um, we're delighted to host and co-host this seminar series uh, with the Centre for Irish Studies in association with the Moore Institute. Um, and Moore has been doing this quite extraordinarily successfully since March uh, 2020. So we've gone the full calendar year uh, coordinating conversations and discussions and debates um, in all aspects of arts and humanities and social, stu um, social studies research uh, throughout our, the island of Ireland and beyond as well. Um, this year in Irish Studies, we have uh, a series of wonderful lectures and seminars uh, organised for you. Um, I'm delighted that we have the first one with us today. Um, just a few notes for your diary as well before we get going. Our, uh, this evening at six o'clock, there is another seminar as well at the Moore Institute with the uh, Centre for Applied Linguistics and Multilingualism that's uh, being coordinated by Dr. John Walsh. Um, and then also uh, Professor Neil Duckerthig will have a virtual book launch of his book um, as well uh, later in March as well and all of those are available up on the Moore Institute uh, website. But back to Irish studies um, today it's my great pleasure to welcome Anna Falconow, who is a PhD scholar in Irish studies uh, in Galway uh, presently. Um, she's the Freyer Hardiman uh, Scholar at UI Galway, and she's currently conducting research on local and global flows and the development of Irish traditional music in Galway City between 1961 and 1981. She previously received her Master of Arts in Music from Wesleyan uh, University in Connecticut, and also graduated from uh, UCC in Cork uh, with her BMOS uh, prior to that. Uh, she's also a contributor and has written a lot um, on Irish music as well. And most recently, her, her chapter on um, It Was in the Air, Irish Traditional Music in Galway, 1960 to 1979, was published uh, in the book on Hardiman and After, Galway Culture and Society, edited by John Cunningham and uh, Kieran McDonough. So uh, today we're delighted to have Anna with us and uh, her paper today is emanating from that doctoral research um, and it's entitled Hotspots for Revival Sessions, Micro and Macro Flows in the Emergence and Development of Galway City into an, an Urban Centre of Irish Traditional Music Making. Um, and we're also delighted then as well to have Professor uh, Anthalov Lilith O'Leary with us from the Irish Department at NUI Galway, who will be the guest respondent to the session today. Uh, so Anna, I'll um, swing it over to you. Lovely, thank you, Nessa. Thanks so much. Delighted to be here for this first um, of the Irish Studies Seminar in 2021. And as Nessa was just saying, my talk today is entitled Hotspots for Revival Sessions, Macro and Microflows and the Emergence and Development of Galway City as an Urban Centre of Irish Traditional Music Making. And I'm just going to share my PowerPoint with you. So here we go. So for those of you who are not familiar with my research, I explore the confluence of local, national and international factors and occurrences in the changing soundscape of Irish traditional music in the microcosm of Galway City between 1961 and 1981. In particular, I focus on the emergence of a vibrant Irish traditional music scene that centered around music sessions in public houses and its significance for Galway's development into a cultural city. In my PhD research, I pursue two aims. 
A, to write a historical ethnography of Irish traditional music in Galway City, 1961 to 1981, and B, to identify and critically assess local and global flows that informed this development. For my talk today, I will concentrate on the second of these two aims and attempt to outline and explore those flows which were essential in the morphing of Galway City into a hotspot of revival sessions, and that is quoting Adam Call from 2007. This will enable insights into the specific context in which Irish music revival flourished in Galway and allows for a comparison of elements of this process with other Irish music revival centers, namely Ennis, Doolin, Cork and Dublin. Furthermore, I will explore the confluence of flows in the genesis of two Galway-based musical outfits, Kjodri Connacht and Didanen, which was crucially facilitated by revival sessions. Their musical activities subsequently radiating out from Galway contributed to the embodiment of revival processes on a macro level. My exploration is non-exhaustive and loosely diachronical within my time frame 1961 to 1981. First of all, some general words regarding perspectives, macro and micro viewpoints, or as I referred to them previously, through local and global lenses in resonance with O'Halloran from 2016. Rethinking my theoretical framework throughout the last few weeks, I arrived at the revised terminology of macro and microflows, which I see as more apt in the context of my research. Anthropologists, the Walt and Pelto, 2019 point to the quote, quote, interactional nature of local and external processes and advocate a consideration and integration of micro-level and macro-level approaches. With my research situated in the microcosm of Galway City, I use the term macroflows or external processes referring to developments at a larger scale in a national and international context and the term microflows for processes directly relating to a local level. The term flow is useful because it highlights the dynamic relationship of occurrences. By using the macro and micro prefix instead of the terms global and local, I avoid setting up a simplistic binary, allowing for more nuanced perspectives rather than slotting all external processes into a global category. So what, where, micro and macro flows at work in the emergence of a traditional music scene in Galway. It is beyond this presentation to go into too much detail in this regard, but to set the background for my discussion in broad strokes, these are. The foundation of Coltas Kyotri Aaron in 1951 through the subsequent expansion of a grassroots level branch system, as well as the creation of new performance platforms and socialization networks at competitive festivals. Increased recording and broadcasting of Irish traditional music, for instance, Galin's releases throughout the late 1950s, and radio programs such as Kieran McMahuna's Kyoto Tira and the Chop of Journey work. John O'Reilly's activities from 1953, his broadcasting on radio such as Rachtracht, An Riedach, Flak, Yol, and Radio, and My Musical Heritage, the composition of music for theatre and film, in particular Misha Era, and notably O'Reilly's creation of new templates for ensemble performance in Irish traditional music with Kjodorik Cullen. The economic policies outlined in the publication of the White Paper Program for Economic Expansion, 1958, also referred to as the Lamas Whitaker Economic Plan, quotation, dislodged the country from its insular moorings 
boosted native industry and opened the floodgates to foreign investment. That's quoting O'Halloran from 1998. With new opportunities at home in Ireland, this brought about a return of emigrants to Ireland, as well as that Port Fáilte had been established in 1952 and tourism was continually expanding. The consumerist bus swept through the nation as shopkeepers and publicans expanded and improved their businesses and coach tours full of foreign tourists began to roll through Ireland villages, summarizes Call or Halloran's further observations. All these factors contributed to the creation of a golden moment where everything was hopeful, everything was possible, writes Curtis in 94. Into this Ireland specific set on conditions came the second wave of folk revival, music revival in the US and Great Britain, especially the Clancy brothers, Music caused new interest and a re-evaluation of Irish traditional music and song. I just go back to the other slide. To this already well-established list, I would add the importance of a focus on house building policies by the Irish government, discussed in detail in the context of Galway City by Patrick Collins in his recent article from 2020, which facilitated large internal migration from rural surrounding areas into Galway. Furthermore, Ireland joining the EU, then EEC, in 1973, propelled developments causing quotation, a welcome boost in regional development, improved educational standards, and new levels of Irish tourism, writes O'Halloran in 98. So this coincided with the Irish traditional music scene in Galway City Pops expanding dramatically. Pat McDonough says in an interview, and you see him there on the slide, it became a kind of boom then for the pubs, you see. They all wanted to have music. Quite a lot of them had sessions back then. Oh, in a very short time, because obviously it was bringing in people. And Sean Turrell remembers, there was a whole big mushrooming of a scene really in Galway, and that's from an interview as well. So let me move from a macro perspective to site-specific microflows. In the course of my research, I have identified the following flows as particularly important to the emergence, growth, and flourishing of a traditional music scene in Galway City. Migration flows, institutional flows, transient flows, language flows, business flows, and in a somewhat quirky category, overflows. So how are these microflows entangled with and embedded in macroflows and how do developments in Galway compared, compare with those in other urban centers in Ireland? Top of my list above, I placed migration flows. This is deliberate because migration flows to Galway, the largest economic center in Connacht then and now were essential for the formation of a nucleus Irish traditional music scene in the city. Internal migration to urban centers is a national, national phenomenon during the 1950s. And this migration flow brought in its wake numbers of traditional musicians. This is not exclusive to Galway. Kearney, Stobel, and Cotter describe similar flows with respect to Dublin and Ennis. However, there's an apparent difference in the histories of Dublin and Cork on the one hand and Ennis and Galway on the other hand, which is important to point out. Dublin and Cork hold the legacy of revivalist Piper's Clubs from the late 19th century. While the latter were dysfunctional for much of the early part of the 20th century, some of their former members kept traditional music alive throughout this interim period. 
in Dublin, in particularly Arousum, through its part-time teaching of pipes at the Dublin Municipal School of Music since 1919. He rekindled the Dublin Pipers Club in 1936, drawing on the base of his students. In Cork, the brothers Dennis and Ty Crowley, quotation, kept piping alive in the lean years of the 1930s and 40s. That's quoting Mary Mitchell from 2011. The Cork Pipers Club was resurrected in 1963 with an emphasis on transmission in forms of classes. These movements in Dublin and Cork had generated and expanded on a pool of traditional musicians so that now by the 1940s and 50s, musical incomers to these urban centers, Cork and Dublin, enriched an already existing scene. Ennis and Galway lacked this legacy. Geraldine Cotter describes how she was surprised to find out the scarcity of musicians living in Ennis pre-1960s in her research. I had the same experience researching music in Galway. So in the next slide, you can see that very few traditional musicians were resident in Galway, but many migrated into the city, the bulk from East Galway. Hammy Hamilton writes, quotation, one of the most interesting aspects of the revival when it began in the 1950s and 1960s was its urban base. The more so because it seems that many had abandoned traditional music as a batch of backward ruralism. And that's from 1995. In Galway, as in Ennis, this urban base is largely made up of recent rural migrants to the city. Collectively, these newcomers constituted a key foundation for music revival processes taking hold in Galway. The second kind of flow that has crystallized in the course of my research, I have coined institutional flows. Two institutions played an important role in Galway's emergence and subsequent development into one of the hotspots for revival sessions to quote Cowell again and refer to the title of this talk. These are Coltas and Anuachi, then Usichi. In the early years and throughout the 1960s and to a somewhat lesser extent in the 1970s, the Galway Quotas branch founded in 1956 played an essential part and links Galway to the macro flows of Quotas grassroots revival efforts. Regarding the university, paradoxically, while UCHI had until very recently no music department, its biochemistry department was a major stimulant for Irish traditional music in Galway in the 1960s and 1970s. But crucial was also the university student socialization network. Schools played a role, sometimes through early musical training, which facilitated a move into learning traditional music, as Jackie Small described in an interview, through bands providing performance experience. You can see one there with Eamon um, and Parik Rapid in it, the harmonica band. And also through attracting a migration flow for the attending of secondary schools, as was the case of the O'Hines family moving to Galway in around 1953. Park O'Hines, a school inspector, was a founding member of the Galway Codas branch, and his son Michal became an important organizer of traditional musicians in Galway in the late 1950s in the form of the Loch Lurgan Cayley Band, while studying at UCG from 1956 to 1959. And indeed, he was an important organizer within Coltas itself um, in subsequent years. 
The mid to late 1950s in Galway saw an emergence of semi-private, irregular, non-commercial music making in a limited number of public houses in Galway. This is not exclusive to Galway City, but also happened in a small amount of country pubs in the surrounding areas. For example, in Spittle, in Teen at Wicklands, Tom Moylan's pub in Loch Ray, Lully's in Atayman, and in Mary Ward's near Kiltulla. As has been demonstrated by Rich Hall in the case of the earliest sessions in London from 1948, by Cowell in Doolin from the 1950s, and by Cotter in Ennis from 1945, publicans with an interest in Irish traditional music were of crucial importance in this development. In Galway, Larry Cullen of Cullen's now on Pukon on Foster Street and Mary and Martin Ford of the Eagle Bar, located at the corner of Henry Street and William Street, West facilitated Irish traditional music sessions that went hand in hand with the establishment of the Galway City Quotas branch mentioned and the foundation of the Loch Larkin Cayley Band as seen in this slide. By the mid 1960s, Irish traditional music sessions at the Eagle Bar became a weekly event growing out of the earlier quotas set meetings and occasional sessions. Participants of the Eagle Bar sessions now included novice learners, enthusiastic listeners and tradition bearers. Musicians received no payment. With international folk revival movements gaining momentum in England and the US and with an increase in Irish traditional music on Irish stage, radio and newspaper among the macro flows mentioned earlier, these sessions now attracted newcomers from a variety of musical and social backgrounds but mostly from the student body of UCG. They came to experience Irish traditional music firsthand in a social space, to listen, observe, learn, and perhaps join in. Quotas affiliated sessions at the Eagle Bar continued until the early 1970s when the Fords sold the pub and moved to Clare Galway. The branches sessions subsequently took place in Cullens and by the summer of 1973 had moved to O'Flaherty's Lower Salt Hill. Notably, while Cotas branches in Ennis and Dublin remained strong since their inception, Galway City's Cotas branch fizzled out in the mid to late 1970s, with the branch failing to attract new and younger musicians and here with a renewed organizer base to carry on the running of it. So to summarize this section, Cotas affiliated sessions played an important part in the context of Galway City, but its significance for the developing Irish traditional music scene receded throughout the 1970s. These sessions facilitated learning and transmission and promoted Irish traditional music to interested people, propelling and embodying music revival at a local level. A socio-musical gathering, they enabled shared experience and were creative space for musicians to strike up closer musical ties. An example of the last point is Kyodori Connacht, a group that was influential in Galway in a number of ways. Accordion player Sean Gavin credits Kyodori Connacht such. They were the first band of influence in Galway. I recall them playing for open air concerts in Air Square, just playing for tourists really. They gave a lot in terms of their musical ambassadorship to the people of Galway and tourists alike. They were great, he says in an interview. The original lineup featured guitarist and singer Dick Byrne from Galway, the organizer of the ensemble. Fiddle player Mae Staunton, her daughter Derville and son Donal on banjo and fiddle respectively. Tin whistle player Festy Conlon and singers Tomás Tom Fotz on Ochten 
and Porky and Johnny Bond of Kishtalaw, all these from Spittle, as well as Amond and Martin Rabbit and dancer Celine Hessian, the latter all from Galway. With this lineup, Kjoldry Connacht embodies early transient flows between Spittle and Connemara and Galway. The sessions in T. Follins and Spittle in the late 1950s had been a catalyst for Dick Byrne's deepening involvement in Irish traditional music. With the establishment of Kjoldry Connacht, he combined new musical connections forged at the Eagle Bar sessions in Galway, Martin and Damon Rabbit, with his pre-existing musical connections established some years earlier at the Spittle sessions, namely Festy Conlon and May Staunton. When Festy Conlon, Derville May and Donald Staunton eventually left the band for a number of reasons, the Eagle Bar's new socio-musical links in combination with the musical skills that had been nurtured and developed came into play. Connemara born, but Galway-based accordionist Pat McDonough as well as Porik Okara and Eden Elon, both associated with UCG's biochemistry department, replaced them. Dick Byrne recalls how the original Kjoldry Connacht competed against Kjoldry Line, which Eamon the Butler had formed after Kjoldry Cullen ceased. Kjoldry Connacht took first place, pointing to the high musical standard of the Galway group. Its later lineup became the band for Shoda, with the addition of Ted Murphy, a singer and guitarist originally from Cork and Galway harpist Lily O'Dee, Dick Byrne remembers. Shoda was a summer show that I dreamt up after discovering that there was absolutely not one single entertainment for tourists or visitors during the summer in Galway, long before Druid or the Arts Festival existed. The only exception was the Pascal Spellman variety show in the Great Southern Hotel, and that was mainly aimed at the hotel audience. Galway's first stage summer entertainment of Irish traditional music, dance and theatre ran at the Thai between 1971 and 1978. It was the public face of Irish music and culture for many tourists travelling to Galway in a growing tourist market throughout the 1970s. The show was also performed at a number of festivals throughout Ireland and in Germany. Migration transient, institutional and business flows all played a crucial role in the formation of Galway band the Danon. With the novel combination of fiddle, basuki and boran, as well as Charlie Pickett's banjo, the Danon combined a folk revival soundscape with expertise in and the depth of Irish traditional music performance. The result was a sound which, quotation, followers of folk music should find a refreshing addition to the traditional music culture that still thrives in Ireland, wrote Shecky Small at the time in the sleeve notes for the Danon's self-titled first EP from 1974. The genesis of the Danon is a complex coming together of macro and micro flows. Let me extemporize on this a little. Alec Finn, bazooki player with the Danon, second generation Irish, originally from Yorkshire, moved to Dublin after finishing art college in Rotherham. He came to Spittle from Dublin in 1968 for extra musical reasons, due to his interest in hawking and friendship ties with John Johnny Morris from Spittle, Lord Clannan's son. The same year, Alec Finn worked with Johnny Morris on a major movie production of a period dra drama, Alfred the Great, filmed in County Galway, taking care of the falconry on the set. Alec Finn describes his playing of the bazooki essential to the Dunnan sound as a near coincidence. Well, the whole thing was really an accident, 
A friend of mine was going on holidays to Greece and I said, if you see a bazooki, bring me one back. And he brought me one back and that's how I got it. And it happened to be a tricord bazooki instead of four. You know, if he hadn't brought back the bazooki from this Asin strip, I doubt if I ever would have played it. And that's from Shea Malaya Alec Finn from 2018. With his background in blues and jock band music, Alec Finn brought with him his own musical approach. The Danans fiddle player Frankie Gaffham explains, quotation, Alec's bazooki playing had a lot to do with that, that special sound. Nobody played that style of bazooki and it had a particular tone as well, which it just gave us a really unique tone or sound. And that's from the same program. So let's listen to the new soundscape of the Danon from 1976, playing a real The Broken Pledge and a snippet of Jenny's Welcome to Charlie. And that is also taken from the Shemo Leo program mentioned. In 1968, also, Tina Wicklins, the site of early pop sessions in Spittle, was bought by John Kelly of the Capital Show Band, who converted it into On Krushkin Lawn. With his own music and music, music business background, John Kelly put on frequent amplified gigs. This caused the migration of local musicians who had previously played in Tina Wicklins, May Staunton, Festy Conlon, and the younger Staunton, Stoneland Durbel, to use his pop, which had had no music until then. Five years later, Sessions at Juices became a catalyst in the formation of the Danon. And Krushkin Lawn, however, was still of further importance. It became Alec Finn's local and John Kelly, its owner, helped the Danon to realize their first EP in 1974. While Alec Finn's reasons for migrating to Galway from Cork were extra musical in nature, Charlie Pickett migrated to Galway for musical reasons in 1973. He was drawn to UCG's biochemistry department because he had observed Irish music making after a conference dinner there in 1970. And to put this into context, he had received a scholarship which allowed him to pursue his postdoctorate at any suitable UK or Irish university of his choice. Frankie Gavin migrated with his parents from Corundula to Galway City in the late 1960s, his father selling the family pop. 
While not exclusively, Cotas played an important role in the musical training of Frankie Gavin, whose mother and father were both fiddle players. His mother, originally from East Galway, invested much time and effort in music lessons and competitions for all her children. Furthermore, Cotas, through the festival socialization scene around competitive flas, indirectly facilitated Johnny Ringo McDonough's entry into traditional music. He went to the FLA in Mount Bellew in 1967 and recalls. And I was watching, there was a session going on. And I was watching and there was an old guy playing a boron. And I was watching him and I said, Jesus, I can do that, sure, right? And lo and behold, about an hour later, Charlie Burns come, came into the pub selling borons. And Jesus, I just wanted one of them. He says in a podcast um, made by Owen O'Neill. Johnny McDonough bought a boron there and then. I bought the boron for 10 shillings and he gave me a lump of a stick, which was Jesus great at the time. And anyways, that night I was playing in the session and I just knew I could do it. Something drew me into it, you know. Entirely self-taught, he proceeded to imitate mostly rock and roll music. His first session experience hailed back to the Liston Werner Matchmaking Festival in 1972, where having his boron with him, accordionist McLean Conlon invited him to stay for the months. After that, some trips to the sessions in O'Connor's and Doolin followed. It was only after these musical experiences outside of Galway that they sought out sessions in the cellar bar, by then a busy venue for Irish music sessions. Encouraged by Mickey Finn, he joined in with Stickler Fitz, Mickey Finn's band with Alec Finn and singer-guitarist Terry Smith at the time. It was also at these sessions at the cellar bar that Charlie Pickett met Alec Finn first. He describes finding commonalities with Alec over their shared interests in birds. He met Frankie Gavin for the first time at the aforementioned Coulter session in O'Flaherty's, as well as Johnny McDonough at another occasion there. The Student Socialization Network at UCG was also very important for the further development of the Dunnan, namely through a key agent, Ollie Jennings, who just then started Music Promotion on UCG's campus in early 1974. The lineup of this, his very first concert featured Kyodori Line and Kyodori UCG. Kyodori UCG, named by Ollie Jennings for the occasion, were Frankie Gavin, Alec Finn, Charlie Pickett, and Johnny Ringo McDonough, i.e., the Dunnan. This was in fact their first public performance ahead of the concert in a Dublin folk club later that year under their permanent name. At this stage, the Dannon had found together at sessions in Spittal at Jesus Pub throughout the autumn of 1973. These sessions were organized by John Lewis and ran as a Cotus event. John and Breda Lewis had moved to Furbo with their young family in the early 1970s, with John Lewis taking up work at Western Digital an American company, then a major employer in Galway. The Sunday morning sessions and uses attracted a lively macro flow. The owner, Breda Uses, remembers. John Lewis organized a session at T Uses on Sunday mornings. It started out with six or seven musicians. Gradually, people started to come from all over the country because there were very few sessions like it at the time. People would even travel from Cork and from Northern Ireland to play music here every Sunday morning before heading home again. And that's from another teaching cover program, Star Spangled Molly. It was at one of these sessions that the Danon got an invite to play at the Dublin Folk Club, quotation. Our success came about almost by accident rather than by design. 
Phil Callery from the Voice Squad was there in TU's one Sunday and asked us to come and play in his club in Island Bridge, the Neptune Rowing Club in Dublin. The rest, as they say, is history and off we went, remembers Frankie Gavin in a newspaper interview with the Limerick leader. The Danans subsequently performed in Dublin frequently because of Charlie Pickett's lucrative scholarship and resulting ownership of a car, traveling to Dublin presented no obstacle for the Danon. So now their musical flow radiated out at the intersection of local microflows and national and international macroflows. So to conclude my talk today, while the emergence of neither the Danon nor Kjolderi Connacht eight years earlier can solely attributed to sessions in public houses, Clearly, these were essential in the formation of both ensembles. In my talk today, I've shown that local occurrences were a result of dynamic confluences of micro and macro flows. Site-specific microflows embedded in and entangled with macro flows are complex, often have a deeply personal dimension and are sometimes coincidental. They contributed to developments on a macro level, embodying and partially shaping music revival in an Irish context. Thank you. And um, particularly, I would really like to express my immense gratitude to all the time witnesses who generously shared their memories and in some instances, archive material from private collections, like with you, with them, this research would not have been possible and would not be possible, I suppose. I'm still in the middle of it. <laughs> so, and um, yeah, thanks so much for the Center of Irish Studies and to the Moore Institute for hosting the talk. Great. Thanks so much, Anna. That was absolutely Good. fantastic. I have to say I was taken with two things. First, uh, the connection of, of Galway to Greece and uh, the, the bazooki arriving over. So um, and also the, the, the was that a Rolling Stone sticker that was on the bar on? It was. So we saw that on the day <laughs> on and yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. The, the, the the rock star imprint was there from day one. So it's uh, that's good to see. Um, we are delighted to have uh, on of Lilith O'Leary here with us. So Lilith, if you'd like to offer some thoughts and comments on Anna's work, and also just to say to our attendees as well, please feel free to add any questions or comments that you have into the Q and A um, button as well too. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Um, I am to be invited to comment on the paper. It's a wonderful paper. Um, the one of the things that occurs to me is modernity, just the idea of modernity. We always think of, a, of tradition, the word tradition and Irish traditional music and tradition. And we consider tradition very often to be a sort of a dead, unchanging uh, sort of entity. And the thing that emerges from Anna's paper very strongly is the idea of flow. She has that word very specifically in her title and in her whole approach to the research. And I think it's really a very useful term because it enables a way of seeing a tradition as dynamic, changing and new at the cutting edge of things that are happening, forces that are moving people around, the housing policy, whoever thought about looking at housing policy to consider the development and the uh, up, upsurge of traditional music. 
Our first revivals go back to 1792 to the Belfast Harp Festival. So you could say that Irish music has been in some kind of revival since then. And Anna's study looks at one of the latest uh, phases of change as new things were happening to Ireland, the stagnation of the 1930s, 40s and 50s, when there was huge out migration. And then this new prosperity of the 60s, when people were coming back, people who hadn't left were moving into the towns and uh, so on. And all of that she documents beautifully in her paper. Um, the other thing is that the surprising thing is that Galway now is seen as a very strong centre of traditional music and historically this was not the case. Anna points to the contrast between Dublin and Cork who had old Pipers clubs that were uh, revived in, in the 1930s but Galway didn't have anything like that. Ennis didn't have anything like that either. So the, the real heyday of Galway traditional music only began in the early 60s and continued through the 70s with the great uh, success of the Danon and other bands. Kjaltari Hunacht is a very interesting phenomenon as well, uh, uh, pointing to the importance of the satellite town of Spiddle uh, in the cultural development of Galway. It's almost like back and forth between those two places. It's very adjacent to Galway, not too far away, but yet still it's not in the city and it gives a certain uh, slant to uh, the activities going on there as well. The university, what can we say about the university? It's very interesting that the biochemistry department was the department where music flourished because there is a story, whether it's apocryphal or not, uh, I don't know, that Galway, UCG was making a decision in the 1960s whether to appoint a professor of music or a professor of biochemistry and biochemistry won out. So it's interesting that music flourished even though it did not get a professorship then. We're still waiting for a professorship of music in Galway, but hopefully since we now have a department, we won't have to wait too much longer. So um, just the idea of the university and again in Thaiviark where Shoda was performed and Thaiviark was also closely linked to the university. So even though this looks like almost an immediate uh, upspringing, the roots were there, the, the, the groundwork, the infrastructure was established long before the period that Anna is studying. And that's a really interesting thing, just that the university has this huge cultural influence on the area. Um, Ollie Jennings, another university phenomenon originally, and that led on to the arts festival and to uh, the parades and everything like that. So uh, you can't really emphasize that enough. And someday perhaps someone will write a cultural history of Galway from the pers perspective of the university's involvement and it would be very interesting to see uh, what comes out of that. Um, 
the EU, of course, all of that, the bars uh, as focal points, as places where people uh, gathered and socialized and music became an integral part of that, but outdoor music as well on the square and so on. Michal O'Hein, I'm so glad he was mentioned. Uh, he was, uh, I knew him well, and he was a great musician, uh, sadly gone from us now. So that's really my take on Anna's paper. I really congratulate her on, on the uh, light way in which she presented a whole lot of very complicated uh, uh, information and detail. Great, thanks very much, Lilith. Um, Anna and Lilith, I'll just ask you to leave your cameras on now just for the, yep. the general discussion as well. Um, and I just, just to pick up on a comment there that Lilith made as well, uh, just with regards to the, the flows and the interconnectivity. Um, the term I was kind of thinking about was like it's a relational geography that it's a it's about movement and dynamism rather than this what you were saying is a static kind of fixed idea of tradition in a particular way. Um, have you seen much other work like are other scholars working with that kind of framework, Anna? Um, looking at um, the making of Irish traditional music culture in that way. Well, I suppose um, yeah. So um, O'Halloran from two thousand and sixteen, I suppose works in with the local and global flows, which it's really recent that I thought, well, why why do I want to just immediately put a global spin on something if some some things maybe just actually happen in a national context at that time. Mm -hmm. So like um I I suppose when Coldest started off, um it was a national movement. I'm sure there were external influences to some extent as well, but it was predominantly very much a national grassroots movement. Um and um so it doesn't seem right to just immediately put a global lens on it as such. Mm. I think that came later. So, um, yeah. So, but um, I suppose with, with O'Halloran's work is he looks at Claire um, from the perspective of flows and changes and again, describing a dynamic um, medium and not mm. what Lilith just referred to as well. I, I suppose not as tradition as stagnation, but making the point that there's always been innovation, I suppose, and always been changes from the word go, really. Mm. Um, maybe the changes have accelerated in the last while or in the last 50 years or so. Um, and then Dory Kearney, um, who I also cite, also looks at that, and he comes from a geography background as well, so very much mm. that's part of his research as well. Yeah. So very interesting. Um, and just one other question. It was actually a comment that I got from an email earlier as well that from a participant who wasn't able to be here today. Um, they wanted to know, was there any other previous work done on this in Ireland? Like you're focusing on Galway City as a centre for traditional Irish music making. Um, and as Lilith said, you know, today it has very much that kind of association, uh, both nationally and internationally. But um, has anybody else done work on this in terms of looking at city spaces as well in Ireland or mm -hmm. looking at the, the, the transition and the changes? Because, you know, for many people, this is really interesting work and it's quite new, I think, in, in some ways, too. Yeah, in that latest revival period. No, I suppose it's just there's bits and pieces, you know, that if you if you go looking, you find accounts on, on music in Dublin and, and changes. But as far as I can see, nobody has pulled it all together yet, which would be really great work to, to see done um, for comparative. And then Geraldine Cotter has done um, research um, on that period, very much the same time frame as my own work uh, in Ennis. But she really comes at it from a transmission angle. And I suppose transmission was so important in Ennis as well because Sean Reed, and I suppose there was a big pipe and club connection there as well, um, was 
working in NSND was hugely important um, mm. in that whole revival period there and the setting up of, up of a quotas branch and immediately like very early even in uh, with regards to any kind of actual focus of quotas on transmission and, and teaching of Irish traditional music and as well as way ahead there in teaming up with the BEC okay. um, from 1963. I think okay. I had that in my paper originally, but it was too much to put in. Yeah. <laughs> People have to get their hands on your thesis yeah. when it gets written. That'd be great. So I suppose Geraldine Cotter is probably the, the, is the most extensive written on the period. And then, of course, Maeve Neorhan's um, thesis is really relevant in terms of the same time frame as well. Um, and looking course, at Google, yeah. so it's a great resource to look at with that. So, I mean, really, you're kind of one of the first people really to look at this intensively, I suppose, from the perspective of Galway as well, which is really mm -hmm. interesting. Like Galway has nothing written on it, really. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's very exciting. So, yeah. uh, Lilith, did you want anything other comments there on that? I don't think so. Um, I, I'm just, uh, I'm really interested in the perspective and the approach of the research, and uh, mm -hmm. I love the way it's all coming together. You know, mm -hmm. I didn't mention Coltis in my summary, and uh, I suppose I should have, but it seems like Coltis, although it's continued to maintain a, per a presence, it wasn't really a dominant force in, in, in the Galway scene from after, you know, the mid seventies anyway. No, no, it, 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 it ceased to, I think that the real- Come back again because we had the FLA, the county FLA on campus another uh, yeah. couple of years ago. I, I suppose way uh, later, yeah, in the 2000s. Involved in, in Coltis in, out in Ochnacara. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I suppose to Claire, um, Castle Garbrandt has been there. Mm. For, for I was interested that you mentioned was teaching at that at Tin Whistle in his early years when he was attending the cellar. So, yeah. and I was, um, I suppose, uh, the Gavins were involved in that as well. So, yeah. well, I knew Thomas Tom Thatch as well. I know him well. He, he was our singer in residence a couple of years ago, and he's mentioned in your paper because mm -hmm. he was part of Kjaltari Connacht. And mm -hmm. I mean, that whole the family, the Standums, and Mihal O'Hein eventually settled in Spittle and mm. there was a whole cultural nest there that also sort of kept contributing to 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 events around the city as well. Very interesting. Mm. McLean Conlon as well in Clare. He was, I <laughs> actually knew McLean Conlon a little bit. Uh, I met him once or twice, but he was playing concertina when I knew. So right. I don't know whether he changed or whether Whatever it was. Well, um, so that's from the, the podcast with Owen O'Neill, I suppose. Yeah. So um, that was an interesting detail I thought about Johnny. I only came across it recently about Johnny's getting into Irish traditional music. Well, it sounds like starting good. rehearsing, practicing to <laughs> rock and roll music, like totally yeah. non traditional after he picked up the Baron for most of it, for, yeah. for a good four or five years before he kind of actually ventured out. So it's great. Just we just got a, a comment here as well, Anna, from um, Eric Bustead, um, who's tuning in from the US this afternoon. Um, so he's, he wants to know what are the implications of your findings? So, you know, in terms of your investigation of what you're uncovering, I suppose, and all these interconnections of migration and housing and the economy and the urban rural connections. What are the implications for this in terms of understanding the production of Irish social music culture in Ireland? Mm -hmm. Um, well, so really, I look at, at this as, as, as a micro study and uh, how music revival manifests itself in the context of, of Ireland. So um, 
it's it's one particular aspect. So I suppose as I pointed to in my paper, so there's, I think Galway and Ennis have a lot of similarities and then there's Cork and Dublin as well through this um, legacy of the Pipers Club. So I think that's a really interesting new understanding to just what we think of as Lilies has referred to earlier as well, just I suppose, and that was how my own interest really in the research came about that I was just amazed how much music there was in Galway when I moved here and I had studied in Cork. And there was just so much more music in Galway and then all the surrounding areas as well. I mean, you were kind of just spoiled for music. And then sort of in conversation with people realizing that scene wasn't like, not to the extent that I realize it now, but at least that the public house session scene wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and then looking at that more. Well, you didn't so, go into Riyadh much when you, in your talk, you mentioned him briefly, but certainly the musical heritage moment was a watershed, wasn't mm-hmm. it? It changed people's perspective and perception yeah. of traditional music and it and, made it cool. And I remember when I arrived in Galway in 1979-80, traditional music was cool. You could hmm. like traditional music and nobody would laugh at you. Yeah, it was like the, the pop music of the day, I forget now yeah. who, who said it for a brief moment. I forgot who I'm quoting there, but um, it really was. And I suppose what I didn't go in, in, in my talk today now at all is that what it was the, the happening thing, I suppose, that quote pointed to that there wasn't really any arts. It was pre-Trude, it was pre-any festivals in Galway. And um, Ollie Jennings early promotion work was, it wasn't an accident that he started off featuring as his first concert that he promoted, Kyodori Lion and um, um, and Dedan and Kyodori Yusichi. And then the next concert he promoted in Leisureland, which was brand new build, was um, The Chieftains. So, and then yeah, actually after, so, and I suppose you have this mix between the folk revival and traditional, and it's, I think, impossible to separate them really, as we see in the Dunn and soundscape is so much a folk revival soundscape as well, uh, contributed to that sound. But um, so I suppose the promotional work at that stage, putting on concert was um, a lot of traditional music and folk music as well. Um, but the first Galway Arts Festival in 1978 featured the Dunnan as the headliner. And then even if you look at works like um, Bob Quinn's work throughout the 1970s has an awful lot of like traditional music in it. Like if, if you look at later work than in the 80s, it, it doesn't, it sort of fizzled out from there. So I think there was just this moment where Irish music was really the cool thing as you put it there very well. Um, and. Yeah, and even the Dan and you know, with um, that's why I suppose my time frame I, I finished at 81, first of all, because it just would get too big to complete it in some kind of timely fashion, my PhD here. But um, Star Spangled Molly was um, released as well, and that just really became. What year was that, uh, Anna? It was um, 81. 81. So um, that was a very, that was a, a huge album, and, impact, and it really impact. became popular. Yeah. yeah. Um, and was this big airplay. But Ollie Jennings was actually managing the Dunnan at the time for those three, four years. Um, so yes, I suppose my point being that really that Irish traditional music scene of that day was really very much um, central to culture in Galway as much as music in Galway and, and, and for further developments than starting off. It was a, 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 the happening thing at the time. Yeah. I have another comment actually on the, just on that decade of the 70s as well from Adrian Scahill. Um, he said, do you, know, uh, do you know much more about what types of audiences attended Shoda in the 1970s? Um, so I presume it's to do with the, the, the tourist In um, Shoda, question. 
and show that, yeah. And oh, yeah. what type of style of arrangement and presentation did the group follow? Yeah, so I was hoping to put in an audio clip. I actually have hold of a couple of shoulder shows, one from 73 and one from 75. But just in the interest of time, I didn't. <laughs> oh, he has a follow up question here. Um, from, I commented that was it the, the Coltis Coltori Aaron model or were they influenced by other cabaret models as well? So um, it's interesting. Um, um, the, the music from 73 now, for instance, the clip I have is very much influenced by um, O'Reader's arrangement and um, featured that, that O'Neill's Clans March or so. Um, and um, you can definitely see an interest in, 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 in influence of that whole arrangement model. It's really well through arranged. Also, Dick Byrne was this, he'd been involved with the type work since the 40s, I think, I believe, definitely the 50s. Um, so just a big theater experience and show experience as well. So it's an extremely well run show, but it's not a corporate show in, in the sense of costumes or it, it's, um, my sense is different from like, let's say Shamsa, for instance, later on. Well, I suppose they started off around the same, a little bit earlier than in Galway really, but, um, and the audience was very much a tourist audience. Um, it was direct at the end, and, and, and Dick Byrne had this great grassroots way of advertising it every day before the show. It would only run for the summer months and um, the weekdays, and it wouldn't run for race week. And he would go around with a loudspeaker on top of his car with the recorded kind of shoulder shoulder times and days and where to get the tickets and drive around the town and advertise it every single day. That's so, the social media of the day, just go around in the car. The, the advertisement effort. So, yeah. Brilliant. But uh, the, the musical program of Shoda changed every year. So they didn't, it actually, and, and then it was interesting. So it's interesting, I suppose it took place at the type York, but the sketches to facilitate and tourist audience, the sketches were, um, um, mimed. Mm -hmm. So the program notes were quite extensive in describing the sketches and what was happening and the context uh, Dick Byrne wrote them in his other hat as a playwright and um, then it featured Celine Hessian and her dancers um, doing some very elaborate dance routines indeed okay. um, and she chore choreographed them. And um, it featured some English songs, some Irish songs, and um, a variety of music, I suppose, as well with Parik O'Kara and his playing a cittern and um, Tin Whistle influenced by kind of airs and Festicon, and for instance, there's not a spittle connection there. Mm -hmm. So, um, no, I don't, I wouldn't put it into a cultist cabaret style. I just think it was very much influenced by uh, Dick Byrne's experience in theatre okay. and, and music and, and, and also just general Big, larger musical experience he played in, in kind of jazz bands before he got into Irish music and he'd been very much into all come all use and folk songs and all you know different different things he played the trumpet once <laughs> <laughs> I'm aware that you in a previous paper you gave at the Centre for Irish Studies when we were able to actually sit down and have a cup on tea and a chat but we're, we'll, we'll make do with the zoom room uh, by default um, that you talked as well about language flow um, and that's something that's kind of that's there in the background of this paper. But would you like to say anything about it now? I mean, Liz made mention to the song tradition as well um, and the bilingual context that's there, of course, in Galway City. Um, so is there any comment on that you'd like to just to say here um, on, on the role of the language um, and the language flow in, in Galway? 
Yeah, I suppose I didn't, uh, I kind of left that whole aspect out of this paper today and just to focus on, 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 on the things I focused on. So language, um, yeah, appears important both as a facilitator and that I suppose you had a, a lively interaction. The fishing industry, actually, I didn't mention, it's very important as well. Um, and Connemara fishermen coming into Galway and staying as well. So one of the early venues of, of music and um, the Castle Hotel, for instance, was frequented by um, Connemara fishermen. And so there was much more of an acceptance of music there. So in general, I suppose that the, um, what comes true in interviews is that really traditional music was not actually generally popular in the 60s. Um, it just was popular in some venues. And I suppose there's even probably a further complication in that um, later on, there were really only a couple of venues where you would hear actual instrumental traditional music without maybe a rake of, 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 I suppose, ballads and folk songs mixed in. So generally the, the blueprint, what I called blueprint, the blueprint of, of music making of, of what, what publicans would pay for in terms of co commercial sessions then later on in the 70s would want to involve a good portion of songs like ballads and, and, and popular folk songs, whatever. But again, the, the spittle connection, the, the language was important there and people were very active in, mm -hmm. in the, the language in spittle. There was a very active community. Yeah. And also because of Collage to um, Connacht there and all the summer schools, there was like, for instance, the Mulligans would come out down for their summer holidays to Spittle. And the Stauntons were extremely important as well. Tommy um, Porrick Bonabrin would be there. Um, and um, so, yeah. Uh, featured on a on a Dedanon album. I don't know which one now. Yeah, the Mist Covered Mountain, that's right. Yeah, it was all yeah, that yeah. connection came through. And then language in, in, in Galway also was a catalyst actually to one of, of the students, Sean Conroy, who um, just in that um, revival moment of, I suppose, Irish language, wanted to start off in the, uh, about 69, wanted to start off a, a conversation night, but tied in with music and in the pub, not in Aris Nagale, with no bar. Mm -hmm. And so he looked for the quietest venue, O'Reilly's, he found at the time on Foster Street. It's not there anymore, it's where the Parkhouse Hotel is now. And it was fine with the publican. And so they had a mix of music and dance and Irish and Cora. And um, it became really popular, but then as the minute it became popular, I suppose the Irish kind of went out the window, but that was really the reason why music started off in there. So it, mm. that's an interesting aspect. So sometimes um, I would describe Irish language in Galway as a facilitator and at times as a catalyst. So okay. yeah, and yeah, just another observation <clears throat> as well, you know, that a lot of the individuals you're talking about are, are men as well. So how does gender, I don't know, there's a whole other history of course there as well in terms of um the gendering of irish music um but have is, is is there a gender dimension to this work as well that you can see on unfolding in a particular way i'm trying to get to grips with that how much i want to go into into that i suppose um yeah there certainly is um a lot less women playing music because it's all public spaces you were talking about today and of course you have that um, change between but there's a lot of women went into the pubs you know it's not like that at that stage it was it was just a transition i suppose um mm -hmm. from women going into pubs and i don't know a woman having a pint of guinness instead of a class of guinness it's not med medicinal mm -hmm. but um so yeah there's like a, a, a certain amount <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> 
But the class be great, never mind the pint. <laughs> I know, a pint <laughs> in a pub. <laughs> what is that? Um, no, but Eden Aelon, for instance, was very important in the scene as well. Um, and May Staunton, obviously. And I think um, important, I suppose, is also personal lifetime is important because I think, for instance, with Lewis's putting on a Sunday morning session, um, I would think has a lot to do as well with their kids being, children being young. And, um, and for instance, May Staunton used to come into um, Galway a lot to perform. And then I suppose eventually didn't do that so much more. Donald Staunton, for instance, you know, when, when he, he studied at UCG as well, her son, um, who was really well-known Brenton player at the time. And um, he took over the family business then eventually after, you know, doing loads of music and basically didn't do music much anymore. Um, so, so I think personal lifetime is extremely important, but the, yeah, I, I really haven't decided how much I, I'm going to, I, I address it somewhere, but I won't, I don't think I'll focus on it too, too much. Be enough for me to and say I'm not going to deal with it because it's a whole other issue. <laughs> it's a big other issue, and um, yeah, so maybe for, for another topic for a post op, maybe. <laughs> yeah, a comment here from John Cunningham as well just to say congratulations on your talk. And of course, John was one of the co editors of the Hardman book as well that you were involved with. And um, his question is Did Planksty and perhaps Horselips um, at the same time represent a moment in terms of making young people more receptive? to traditional music um, and we might finish up then in a moment yeah. then after that yeah. um well i suppose planksty had had a big influence on, on on people as well indeed and galway of course is connected with planksty because it just happened coincidentally i suppose as well but um that 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 tour kicked off in galway and and it had such a huge reception but by all accounts the reception in cork was very enthusiastic as well which was i think the next kick of of um of that tour but it just is a moment that that I suppose people remember and that that really propelled Planks tea. Well, one of the big things was the, the summer festivals, Ballas Adair on one side of Galway and Lister and Varna on the other side of Galway. Yeah. And, and the Danon and Planks tea would always be at those festivals. Yeah. yeah. I suppose that whole festival scene started off around the time exactly. Yeah. It's this whole moment in time where a lot of things are happening, isn't it? And it all kind of con yeah. confluences. Yeah. No, it's very it's very exciting work and we're we're delighted that you were able to share um kind of how it's evolving and unfolding uh, with us today and thanks to Lillis as well from zooming in from the other side of Galway County as well so we're we're, we're covering the western part of the Carib and the eastern part of the Carib um far and wide on Zoom who knew <laughs> um and just also to say as well that uh you know that Anna's work and this is from uh, her supervisor Dr Maeve Neurhorn that she really is rewriting the accepted history of the revival um, and in particular, the critical accounts of the chronologically organised session scene. Um, so we um, await with bated breath for the next instalment of your doctoral research, Anna. So I just want to say congratulations again on congratulations. that. And, yeah, Thank and Garmila Magad Lillis, fresh in us, the um, so we'll wrap up there. Um, just to say another date for your diary is our next um, Irish study seminar for the spring series. Um, we'll be at 4pm on Thursday, the 29th of April. That's 4pm Thursday, the 29th of April. And we will have Professor Margot Bacchus of the University of Houston and Professor Joseph Valente from oh, the University of Buffalo. Um, they're going to be doing kind of a masterclass really on their new co-authored book, which is called The Child Sex Scandal in Modern Irish Literature, Writing the Unspeakable, uh, which was published late last year. 
um, and they're going to be discussing um, issues in relation to contemporary and modern Irish literature, but through the lens of um, of all of the different uh, scandals that have engulfed uh, contemporary Irish society in recent years. So that will be another one for your diary. We will have another one then again in May and another uh, seminar there finishing the series in early June as well. Um, everything will be available on Facebook and uh, also on Twitter um, and our recordings uh, will go out afterwards on the Moore Institute and the Centre for Irish Studies as well. So I just want to say thank you so much again. It was lovely to have a little bit of a chat um, and uh, thanks to all of the uh, participants and the um, the attendees as well today and many thanks as well to, um, to David Kelly and to Daniel Carey in the Moore Institute as well for coordinating and co-hosting uh, this session this afternoon. So I want to say thank you very much indeed. Um, a belated happy St. Patrick's Day to everybody. Um, and Garmin Magath Anna, August Lillis, August Baby the Kind of Okay, Slonga Foley. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.